Hello and welcome to The Researcher Podcast, your regular look at the research that's making waves in the scientific community and the people behind it. My name is Joe Fenton and I will be your host today. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Rick Stewart-Smith from the University of Tasmania. Rick is the author of Ecosystem Restructuring Along the Great Barrier Reef Following Mass Coral Bleaching. Today we'll be finding out a bit more about both the paper and the person behind it. Rick, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Joe. Okay, so before we get into your paper, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your academic career so far? Yeah, sure. Um, So uh, I suppose uh, always um, been interested in um, in fish and aquatic ecosystems um, since I was quite young, and so um, you know, in terms of my my career, it's it's certainly progressed in a way that um, has allowed me to to stay close to, to fish in particular. But um, I've been lucky enough to to involve um, diving as and you know observing fish and counting them and things underwater as as part of my data collection and part of my career. So um, yeah, lucky enough to spend a lot of time in the water for it. Okay, so for those that may not have read ecosystem restructuring along the Great Barrier Reef following mass coral bleaching. Could you give us a brief overview at all? Yeah, sure. So I suppose um, the way I describe this may require some background from uh, the Reef Life Survey, um, which may come down later. Um, but so we've um, myself and Graham Edgar started a, a citizen science program 10 years ago called Reef Life Survey, which is, is now an international program. And it's about extending our scientific team basically to uh, the most committed and, and capable recreational divers. Um, so we train them to do the same uh, standardised, really detailed methods for recording the fish diversity and abundance and um, the mobile invertebrates uh, all on on a, a transect line underwater and taking photo quadrats to, to get coral, al- coral cover and algal cover. Um, so we've we've had this team of um, I think in ten years we've had about two hundred and fifty divers contributing and we've done almost twelve thousand underwater surveys around the world from the Arctic Circle down to Antarctica and uh, all ocean basins between. So we've got this amazing rich data set of what lives on rocky and coral reefs around the world, and uh, we happen to have a lot of information um, from the Great Barrier Reef from. Uh, a couple of survey cruises with reef life survey divers through uh, to about 2015 before the bleaching event. And so when the mass bleaching event happened in uh, early 2016, um, we, we kept an eye on, on it and uh, managed to um, get teams back out there to resurvey the exact same sites at the end of the year, almost a year after the bleaching event so that Things had subsided a little bit, or well, the, the temperatures had subsided, but um, the coral had had a chance to either regain the, the zooxanthellae and, and and recover or or die. So um, we were looking at the the outcome of the of the bleaching event um, for the immediate future, uh, and um, we were able to use a, a huge rich data set from before to compare to. So. Um, yeah, that's what the paper was about. Basically, we, w- we were not only able to just look at how much the coral cover had changed as a result of the mass bleaching event, but what the implications were for the fish communities that lived on them and the invertebrates. So one of the things that you know most people know about bleaching events is that 
it has a big impact on some of the fish that depend on the coral for food, the, the small colourful butterfly fish, for example. But it also is important for, for habitat. But I guess the, the broader implications of mass bleaching events haven't been described to this extent because they tend to be focused on one or, or two particular areas that are impacted. So where this study was unique was that we had an opportunity to look along the entire length of the Great Barrier Reef and out in the Coral Sea, an area spanning something, uh, I think it's 15 degrees of latitude almost. It's a it's a huge area and, and the impacts were different from top to bottom. So um, it was quite unique in terms of the, the geographic scope and the level of detail of the data that we had available to look at the impacts. So when I was doing the research for this particular paper and for this particular episode, I saw these pictures of uh, pre and post reefs that had been affected by coral bleaching. So for those that may not be too familiar of this process, could you explain it to us in layman's terms at all? So um, basically mass bleaching is just, a, it's a, a term used to, to describe any bleach, coral bleaching that's not just localised. So coral bleaching happens when the water temperatures uh, um, rise too, too much. There's a, a number of triggers, but it, they include, they've been hypothesised to include um, UV radiation as well as um, excess temperatures. But basically, they're triggered by warm ocean events, uh, which have been happening more frequently in around the world in in the last couple of decades, um, and are predicted to increase in frequency. But basically, when a mass bleaching event is when you see coral bleaching happening in heaps of areas. Basically, this this last one in 2016 and and in 2017 um, affected areas from uh, the Western Indian Ocean all the way through to uh, Australia and the uh, um, uh, Central Pacific. Uh, so, and I think in the Caribbean as well, actually. So, it it affected such a a broad area just because the global sea temperatures ele were elevated for, for long enough to um, impact corals. So um, when the corals lose their zooxanthellae, the, the little algae that photosynthesise to provide part of their food source, the algae disappear from the coral, they're, they're ejected and um, the coral goes white. So that's why it's called bleaching. So we've got white corals all around the world. That's a mass bleaching event. So rising sea temperatures and the reasons that you have just given us as to why coral bleaching occurs. But I'm just wondering why specific areas are affected more than others. And in your paper, you talked about the Northern Coral Sea Reef. Yeah, so at local scales, it can be incredible um, how variable bleaching affect coral reefs. So some something that was really obvious to us, you know, there was a lot of reports from the mass bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef of the whole northern Great Barrier Reef being dead basically there was a lot of um, concern over the whole area but when you were diving when we were diving along there after the bleaching event there was we could be diving on one reef that was absolutely hammered it had barely any living coral left and it was devastating to, to see and then we could dive on the next reef uh, only two kilometers away and it could be untouched so even though that the sea temperatures were elevated across that region there may be some local, we, we can only hypothesise why. Some of the reasons could be that there's uh, local cooler, cooler water or currents flushing one reef when the other reef is sitting in a pool of hot water. Or there's also the possibility or that we know that some corals are affected more than others. So the coral composition on one reef may be 
made up of less susceptible corals than the other. Even amongst the same coral species, we observe big differences from reef to reef. So, yeah, I, I guess it's um, it has it's likely related to local conditions. You know what um, what the corals on that particular reef at that particular place are experiencing, and whether they they're stressed enough to be bleached. I think that was one of the important findings of our study was this variability that happens isn't necessarily captured well in other studies because they tend to look at one one reef or one small area that's affected by bleaching. And so the outcomes that they find are not necessarily always generalizable because they don't know what's happened to the other reefs nearby, whereas we had a, almost an experimental design where we had reefs next to each other that experienced similar broad conditions but showed different levels of impact on the corals. So the fish may have experienced similar sea temperatures, but um, their coral habitat changed in different ways. And so with these localizations and the habitats of corals and fish, does it make it that much harder to predict when these bleaching events may actually occur? Um, predicting when bleaching may occur is um, sort of, it's beyond my level of expertise, but um there's there's oceanographers and um, modelers the, who have been working tirelessly trying to to better predict when bleaching may occur. At the moment, there are there are short term forecasts available. So there's a few um, NOAA uh, from the US have um, forecasts for bleaching, and uh, there's certainly possibilities to identify the that bleaching may be more likely to occur come in a very short near future you know in short time frames but there's not really much that we can do to predict them in the long term at, at this point in time but again i'm not i'm not the expert on the the oceanographic events that largely cause these and um, the climate events that drive them so yeah as far as i know it's still very difficult to to forecast all, all we know at the moment is that these events are increasing in frequency and there have been a few papers out that suggest they're predicted to continue to increase in frequency. Okay, so in your paper, you talk about these 186 reefs that were studied, and then you moved into less studied and more remote areas. So I'm just wondering, what are the differences in the two, both academically and logistically? Um, so in terms of the 186 reefs that, that formed part of, uh, of this study, these were reefs across the Great Barrier Reef and the Coral Sea where we had before and after data. So we, these were the reefs that uh, these were the sites. There was 186 sites uh, rather than reefs. These were the ones where we could compare uh, what happened to the coral and what happened to the the fish and invertebrates as a result. The ones that were more isolated, uh, the coral sea, the data we had from before were amongst the only data available because they're so isolated and poorly studied. The data that we'd collected out there was very much baseline data and exploratory data, and those coral sea reefs actually have quite a different fauna on them from the Great Barrier Reef, largely because of their isolation. So their fish and invertebrate fauna are much more similar to the reefs of Tonga and Samoa 2,000 kilometres away than to the Great Barrier Reef only 200 kilometres away, just because the species that, uh, that live there are, are basically the ones that can disperse long distances. So the responses there were a, a little different from the Great Barrier Reef. The biggest, I guess, Somewhat one of the more interesting findings of the study was that there were consistencies in the responses, and uh, it was responses to temperature that were that appeared to be the most interesting and um, consistent responses uh, amongst the fish communities in particular. So even if the uh, coral and fish communities were had different composition, there were some similarities in the way they responded to the warming. So in your paper, 
you mention that you will not be able to understand the full impact of the 2016 coral bleaching for another 10 years. I'm just wondering if you could speculate what you believe will occur during this time and what its impacts would be. Um, I think one thing I have learned from lots of time under the water is that there's always ecological surprises. So we can predict things, but um, there's always things that that go in different directions. And I'd say um, it's very it's inevitable that, that some of these reefs won't recover to their full full glory. You know, they probably weren't in the, at their full glory even before this bleaching event. Um, so uh, I think the outlook for some reefs is probably not that great, but there are a lot of corals that actually grow much more rapidly than people appreciate. And I wouldn't be surprised if if some of these reefs rebound quite quickly. Uh, we have quite a few herbivorous fish on Australian reefs and they're not targeted by uh, by fishes, not at all really. So the parrotfish that play an important role and, and were one of the important results of this study are still are still there, especially in the southern reefs. And I've got no doubt that the southern reefs will, will bounce back reasonably well. The, the northern ones, I think even if they bounce back from this event, the concern is what happens through the longer term, even more than 10 years, um, if there's more bleaching events. But based on other studies, the, the prediction would be that the dead corals will erode with storms and uh, the habitat loss, the structure of the reef will be broken up and, and result in fewer fish. That's the general prediction, but I'd say that it's not likely to occur at every reef uh, and, and certainly um, we'll see some, some variability in the responses. At least we, we feel like the, even in the northern areas where we observed herbivore loss, with the parrotfishes in particular declined in the northern warmest parts, we still believe that they'll probably come back because the the losses and the and the big changes that we saw are likely to have been a result of temperatures which were elevated for a number of years we had a number of hot years in a row and a few cool years should see the return of those sorts of fish so we we would have hoped that the at least herbivory isn't isn't lost you know in the north northern parts yet and that that should assist the recovery that was actually going to be my next question um so moving on to the impacts of the piece. How do you think this piece could impact either the academic or, to put in quotes, the real world? Yeah, so I think in the academic world, it's interesting because it covers a situation where there wouldn't have been possible without citizen science, without the Reef Life Survey Program and the amount of data that we've been able to collect over such a big scale. These sorts of things that that would have cost millions and millions to to do with a a professional scientific team and it wouldn't have been done. There's a reason that the coral sea reefs haven't been surveyed so well uh, because of the expense and isolation uh, to date. So some of the learnings from this academically are incredibly interesting and uh, wouldn't have been possible otherwise. In the real world, which is obviously more important, I think we're lucky that this was Australia and where, we, as I said, we, we tend not to harvest the parrotfish. The parrotfish in the Caribbean have been long known to be an important component of the ecosystem that's been gradually eroded. And in the Pacific, there's many places where parrotfish are the preferred target. If they are as important as people believe in recovering reef systems that have been degraded by bleaching events and storms and if they are as important as, as we all believe, then uh, we, we certainly need to, to protect them on these reefs. And one thing that people haven't really been thinking about is what's the effect of temperature on these fish. The reasons we, we looked at this is because we've also done a lot of research in temperate environments because Reef Life Survey spans temperate and tropical 
world and it's very different situation in temperate environments where herbivores are, herbivorous fish are actually less common so as the water cools as you go further towards the poles you get fewer and fewer herbivorous fish and so as waters are warming we're actually seeing herbivorous fish extending further south and having a different form of impact we've been observing that quite clearly in temperate areas but the tropical um, the coral reef research community has, hasn't been paying as much attention to what's happening at the warm end. And there's lots of reasons that herbivores are affected strongly by temperature more than other groups of fish. But I think the, the real world uh, implications for this are that there's, there's the warmest parts of the, the world's seas, the, the warmest coral reefs, say in Indonesia and, and parts of the central Indo-Pacific, are possibly going, you know, I guess we, we could make some predictions that it's possible that herbivores will suffer ahead of other species in terms of um, the effects of warming. So it's something we have to be prepared for, and I think that management uh, actions need to, to consider. So stopping the exploitation of herbivores ahead of other groups of fishes is, is possibly an important step, but certainly something that needs to be looked into, uh, into more. So if we want our coral reefs to recover from future bleaching events and cyclones, uh, in the warmest seas, we have to consider the effects of, of temperature on the, the species that help the reefs recover. Okay, so as the world becomes... Actually, let me rephrase it. As some countries have become far more environmentally enlightened, I'm just wondering, has there been any funding by the Australian government to protect or reverse some of this ecological damage that has been done to the Great Barrier Reef? I'm probably not in the best position to answer that, but I believe so. We did see a big commitment by the Australian government towards research on the Great Barrier Reef. And I have heard that there's been quite an increased focus on uh, reef restoration and uh, trying to, I guess, um, enhance resilience of corals to thermal stress. Um, So there's a number of initiatives and funding avenues that seem to be um, taking off and, and being spurred on by uh, increasing frequency of disturbances in general, not just mass bleaching events. So in Australia, I think it's probably true that the, there's an increased focus, but we always v- have valued the Great Barrier Reef so much in Australia, and the Australian government has always put a lot into it. And I guess it's very obvious to me coming from, you know, I live in Tasmania and uh, in the cool parts of Australia, and it's very obvious the difference in funding that the Great Barrier Reef gets compared to elsewhere, which is obviously fantastic for the Great Barrier Reef. So. Um, I think that the funding situation is, is has possibly been improving, but as I said, I think there's, I'm probably not best placed to to answer that specifically for, for coral reefs um, because much of much of the work that I do isn't isn't funded by coral reef specific funding sources. Yeah, I guess that makes complete sense. And so, I'm going to move on to more of the personal side of this podcast and ask you, who has been your biggest influence? throughout your academic career? You know, obviously the first first answer is is my wife who's been incredibly supportive through through my career so far and um, stood by and supported me when I've been you know, spending lots of time in the field and away and uh, training reef life survey divers and so on. But in terms of academically, uh, Graham Edgar, Professor Graham Edgar at the University of Tasmania, has been a, a mentor of mine. Uh, he took me under his wing uh, probably 12 years ago and has been an incredible mentor and certainly affected, influenced my work heavily. Uh, and I, I certainly owe him 
um, any of my successes in terms of, you know, we, it, Reef Life Survey was his idea and together we built it, but he, he's certainly a, a genius. Uh, the other person that's influenced my work a lot is Amanda Bates at the Memorial University of Newfoundland in Canada. She she worked in, in Tasmania for a while and her interests in how temperature affects the, the physiology of of uh, animals, of marine animals in particular, was, um, you know, certainly a, a, a really great crossover. She was coming from the, the physiological side of, of things and, and I was coming from the <coughs> sort of field ecology and community ecology side. And uh, we both sort of met in the middle with how, how important temperature is for, for all of these uh, influences. So, yeah, Graham Edgar and Amanda Bates in terms of academically. Okay, so this next question is a question I'm very much looking forward to asking you. And that is, how do you spend your week? Because obviously there's reading and researching, and then you also have your diving as well. Many academics about this that they'll say it's a it's a hundred and fifty percent full time job. Uh, it's um, I think uh, for me, um, Reef Life Survey is a it's a, an extracurricular activity. So my day job is at the moment and for the last few years has been doing research that's needed and relevant to the Australian Government uh, Department of Environment. And so uh, I, I get to use the Reef Life Survey data a lot and other reef data and reef biodiversity data, but that is my day job while on the weekends and in the holidays, I'm training Reef Life Survey divers and, and participating in the, the monitoring uh, by Reef Life Survey. We also do some of that, of course, as a day job at work with the scientific team at the University of Tasmania. But some of the adventures uh, with Reef Life Survey are... Um, yeah, are certainly enjoyable and, and, and make it worthwhile putting in the extra time that, uh, you know, well and above the, the regular work hours. So, um, yeah, a, a lot of my week is, is certainly spent, um, well, a lot of it's working and, uh, lots of, lots of field trips. And yeah, that's certainly the, the bits I enjoy. The field, the field work is fantastic. Well, it certainly sounds even more than the 150%, to be honest. Okay. So my next question is a question that many of our listeners may be using in their academic lives now, and that is all about productivity. So do you have any tips that you've used to increase your own academic productivity at all? Um, yeah, well, I think the easiest thing for being productive is doing something that you love. So um, it's it's quite easy uh, if you um, if you chase the chase your dreams and you're doing the work that you love, you'll you'll naturally be more productive. And so for me, it's not that difficult. I think also being prepared to to put in the extra hours. I think people realise too in an academic career, especially if you're doing your own research and uh, you have some research flexibility that. To maintain that, you need to be able to put in the extra work to do the the less exciting things like reports and grant proposals, and and you need to work hard on those things to be able to do the things you love. So basically, you you're driven to be productive to be able to do the things you love, and you have to spend the time doing those things. So yeah, I think in terms of there's no tricks to it. Uh, the the only tip is just chase your dream, and you'll naturally be productive. If you're doing something you don't enjoy, it's going to be a, a, an uphill battle. Okay, and it's now time for my last question. And I've got a very strong feeling that it's going to link back to the previous question I asked you. And that question is, what would be your one piece of advice for anybody that is just about to start their PhD? 
uh, certainly chasing your dream. Uh, I think there's, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of negativity out there at the at how difficult it is to find and and maintain work in in science, especially marine science. I certainly I've had friends and relatives who wanted to be marine scientists who didn't chase it because they felt there wasn't enough work opportunities. And I have to say, it's not easy. It's not like there's lots of lots of work opportunities. But if you love it enough, you work hard enough, and you do well enough, you you'll find work. And the other thing that most people realizes that you know being prepared to move is move around to to stay employed is important but for a phd itself i'd certainly recommend you know you need to to stay motivated through the through the course of it so doing something that you love is critical for the phd something that can provide you with good track record you don't expect to change the world with your phd you do something that, that gives you good opportunities to publish good papers and is something that you'll stay motivated with and then yeah chase your chase your dream in for your career and certainly network and get get to know people get to know all of the renowned researchers and um yeah find a good mentor amazing thank you so much so that's just all about time we've got for today on the researcher podcast i've been delighted to be joined by rick stewart smith from the university of tasmania rick thank you so much for joining us no worries thanks for having me joe and thank you for listening everyone until next time You've been listening to The Researcher Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. You can also follow us online at www.researcher-app.com. Or, alternatively, you can drop me an email at joseph.fenton at researcherapp.com. Researcher is free to use on iOS, Android, or on your web browser. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to leave us a review.